name is Dr. Ethel Tunkelheim. I'm a writer, a researcher, an associate professor of politics, and an activist. This is Academic Antis. It is the second week of January 2024, and already I feel exhausted. During the winter holiday, I truly rested. I read for fun. I hung out with friends and family. I did a 1,000-piece puzzle while listening to a murder mystery. The best part was I didn't have to check work email. Then 2024 comes, and with it comes new courses to teach, letters of reference to write, and multiple deadlines. I now realize something's got to give. I cannot sustain such an intense pace of work. And I also have the epiphany that I don't have to, and that in fact, expecting to give 100% to every single activity would not be good for my mental and physical health and for my family. And so for this episode, I decided to talk to my good friends, Tobin LeBlanc-Haley and Laura Pinn to ask, what strategies do they have to make their work easier? And by work, I mean their work as professors and their domestic work. Here's your conversation. Enjoy. So for today's episode of Academic Antis, our first episode for 2024, I thought I'd bring in two of my favorite people, Tobin and Laura, and we have a group chat going, talking about life and other things, although we need to activate that again. And I thought, you know, it would be a good opportunity for us to talk about ways to make our lives in 2024 easier in light of the political turmoil and all the other things happening in the world. So I'll ask... um, um, Laura to introduce herself first and then Tobin and then we'll just jump right into it. Hey Laura. Hey Ethel. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so I feel like I've reached some sort of milestone in my life being on <laughs> academic aunties. Um, I'm so glad to be here. I'm an assistant professor at Wilfrid Laurier University in the political science department there. I have a spouse uh, and one child, one human child and one cat child. And I live in a different city than my university. So I uh, commute into campus and it's about an hour drive. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Do you go in every day? No, thank goodness I don't. Oh. But this semester I'm in three days a week. And so that's about six hours of driving time. It is, you know, it is time consuming for sure. And especially 100%. with community engaged research, I think it's a little bit challenging to be living outside the community. Yeah, for sure. Tobin. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Ethel. My name is Tobin Lebelahili. I'm also an assistant professor in the sociology program at the University of New Brunswick on the St. John campus. And I am currently the Faculty of Arts Research Chair, which is a two-year internal research chair, and I co-direct the Housing Mobilization and Engagement Research Lab. And and much like Laura, I have a, a spouse, I have two small children, and I also commute to work. So I live uh, an hour away from my job. Oh my gosh. So all of us are handling like social reproduction with research work, but also service work and teaching. And that's a lot to do. (laughs) Yep. Oh gosh. I guess, you know, that's one thing I wanted us to talk about. So maybe even like tackling teaching first, what are some of the things you do to make teaching and the workflow that comes with teaching a little bit easier? Honestly, Ethel, you know, and I said this to you when you sent the the message about academic antis and the topic for this week, my initial response was 
you know, I don't manage it very well. I never feel like I'm totally managing things well. That said, I think there's a few decisions I make around teaching and how I structure things that are just sort of survival tactics to try and manage my time and protect my time so that I can get everything I need to get done. One of the things that I I do is I look at TA support very closely when I'm trying to design the assessments for a class. So how much TA support do I have? How much grading am I going to be doing? How big is the class? And then I'm kind of ruthless. So if I only have TA support for one, you know, to grade one written assignment, then that class is going to be structured around only one written assignment. So right now I'm teaching a large second year class. There's 120 students. I have one TA. There's no tutorials, mind you, but I only have one TA. So it's not a lot of grading support. Um, So that, you know, we're doing a very short written assignment and the tests are mostly multiple choice that can be automatically graded with a little bit of short answer, but mostly multiple choice. And that is intentional and it's not necessarily pedagogically driven, but it's resource driven. You know, Laura, I think it's important to highlight that sometimes there's a conflict between our goals when it comes to delivering good pedagogy, but also the realities of the university as a workplace, right? If the institution values teaching, then they would give you more TAs with more working hours. But you're given one TA with limited hours, thus, you know, you have to kind of square your assignments with that, right? Yeah, exactly. And just kind of let go of of some of the, the guilt there, you know, where, yeah, I would love to do more creative, maybe more creative assignments, things that I think might be a bit more engaging, but without sufficient support in a class of that size, I need to think about how to really up the student experience in other ways that are less labor intensive for me. Tobin? Yes. So, so similarly, I teach, I think I have uh, in, in my largest class this year, there's a hundred students, maybe, maybe 90. And I also have limited grading support and our our TAs are undergraduate students. We only have access to undergrads. That's the way that the agreement with the university works, which is a great experience for undergraduate students, senior undergraduate students, but also it it is also a a teaching moment where you're teaching these students how to step into a, a TA role. And so one of the ways, one of the things that I'm experimenting with this year uh, is twofold. One is a flipped classroom. Mm. I'm experimenting with a flipped classroom where all of the lectures are pre-recorded and then students are supposed to read as well and watch the lecture. And then they're coming into the classroom to do active learning Mm. uh, and active learning activities. And it is a large group to do active learning activities. And we're only in week one, but so far so good. And what I'm finding that that does is that it reduces anxiety around lecture materials because they have access to them. They're recorded. They're there for them online. And I think this is something that we saw happen in COVID where being able to access those lectures sort of again and again and again, kind of like reduced anxiety and reduced students sort of like constantly emailing you about particular ideas or concepts or, you know, whatever after class to make sure that they fully understood. And um, it also reduces anxiety, or I'm hoping that it does, about reading. Mm. Students are in a totally different position now than, than they were, let's say, 10 years ago where the cost of everything has gone up. Yeah. Certainly in, in New Brunswick, you know, most of my students work and, and balance community obligations and family obligations and go to university. And so finding the time to read, having access to the finances to purchase the textbooks, all of these things, I, I do think create reading avoidance and reading anxiety. That's awesome. So one thing I wanted to kind of follow up on you both is that these are large classes that you're teaching and not the only classes. Uh, One of the biggest sources of stress for me is email, 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 student emails, emails from everyone 
all the emails all the time, all asking me to do something. How do you manage that? And I know that there are different emails coming from different folks and, you know, there's different philosophies with that, right? Like some of my colleagues are like, it's inbox zero. I'm like, how do you manage that? But specifically for teaching and for student demands and emails, how do you kind of manage that? (laughs) Yeah, that's such a great question. And I'm not inbox zero. I'm like inbox 5,000 or something. (laughs) It's the opposite strategy. I'm like, if I need to find something, it's in my inbox. I would say there's a few things. One of the things is, and I mean, I think this is a common frustration for instructors where the information that they're emailing you about is in the syllabus. Mm. And so one of the things I do at the beginning of the semester is make a syllabus quiz and students get points for doing the quiz. And I would like to think that that helps where it forces them to like read the syllabus and find the answers to some of their questions. So that's one strategy. Two other strategies really quickly that I think are useful One is that my assignment deadlines come with a grace period and I've experimented with 24 or 48 hours. So students get a a small bonus, like 1% on the assignment if they actually get it in on the deadline. And that's to provide some incentive to try and meet the deadline. But if they need a short extension, so 24 or 48 hours, they can just take it and there's no penalty. Mm. Cut down on those requests and also kind of cut down on Um, students feeling like they need to perform some particular type of trauma or difficult experience, you know, where I really, I want you to take the time that you need within reason. And I don't want you to feel like you need to recount everything that's going on in your life to me to take that. And so I think that is helpful in cutting down on email with those sorts of, of requests. And then the other thing I've experimented with is having an engagement grade. So Instead of 10% for class participation, students get 10% for engagement um, in larger classes. And they can earn that by coming to class and participating, but they can also earn that asynchronously through online engagement options like that syllabus quiz or discussion forum posts. And so I think that helps cut down a little bit on student emails about, I'm going to be away, I'm missing class this week, what do I do to make it up? Because the answer is nothing. You don't need to do anything other than, you know, check the slides, email a friend to find out what you missed. Your grade is not penalized, right? You just need to take one of those other options. And so I think that does help cut down a bit on correspondence. I think that's awesome. And I know that, Tobin, you've also shared some strategies too. Do you do similar things? Like what suggestions do you have? Certainly providing students with the ability to manage their own time without needing to email me to account for it, to feel like they have to, you know, like, like Laura said, you know, perform in a particular way in order to have leniency or flexibility. Absolutely. One of the practices that I implement is students can miss two weeks of class. Like, so in in my case, that's four, four classes without any questions, like no questions asked, no impact on their grade, nothing. They can just not be there because life happens or, you know, and you have a work shift or your kid's sick or yeah. you have a big assignment for another grade or I don't know, you slept in, mm-hmm. like, who, you know, or you didn't want to come, mm-hmm. you know, like, let's be honest. Then, so they get that two weeks of class time where no questions asked with no impact on their participation grade. And so there's, there's that flexibility and that does cut down on correspondence. Also, making sure that they have multiple ways of engaging and Mm -hmm. and participating so that they don't feel like they have to be there like speaking all the time. The other thing that I do is that I'm, I'm pretty strict about office hours 
and how students engage over email. And this is also because I, I, I'm also undergraduate advisor. And so my inbox can just get flooded. Yep. And students, I have more office hours than is typical for a course. Yep. So I have, you know, one set of office hours is, is in an afternoon and another is in the morning to try to like pull students in as they need to. And I just sit there and students can join online. It's all online. Okay. They join online and it just, it dings to me that someone needs to talk to me and I can go and I can speak with them and they know that those are the hours that I am there and they can come, they can ask any questions that they want. And that is their time to access me, but that I don't answer questions about assignments over email mm. in terms of like, Oh, Hey professor, like, do you, can you read over this paper? Mm-mm. Not over email that if something's in the syllabus and you ask me, I'm, I'm probably going to ask you to like review the syllabus mm. that it will be 48 hours before I respond to an email. And so those are some of the strategies that I've input, but I would say that being available for more office hours than is typical has really reduced sort of that email back and forth because students so they can just pop in mm-hmm. from their phone mm-hmm. and like ask a quick question. That's great. Cause I think the tendency is, especially in neoliberal universities, that we are available 24-7, even via email, and we can respond to your questions whenever. And any questions that they have, whether it's about readings or assignments or even about like grad school, that this is all kind of acceptable to acceptable to ask via email. My question to that is, have you received pushback from students, both of you? Cause I I guess I don't know, like, I mean, maybe this is a question for my therapist, but one of the the hardest things is that you enforce boundaries. And I find that even as you try to enforce boundaries, boundaries sometimes get eroded by people pushing back. So at least when it comes to students, are there people, are there students who are like, what the heck? Or has the response been, okay, those are the rules. We'll just abide by them. So I have, I have a lot of like capital F feelings about this <laughs> because I run into it all the time because I am inherently a people pleaser. Mm. Um, and I have tried really hard and people who don't know me super well, but who know me are like, that's not true, but it is true. I promise you. I am inherently a people pleaser. I hate it when people are uncomfortable or upset or mad at me. Um, and that does absolutely bleed into my teaching. It also bleeds into my relationships with colleagues and and, in community. And so I have a lot of, again, probably a discussion for my therapist, but I have a lot of like (laughs) capital F feelings about this issue because I have had to accept that by establishing these boundaries, it's going to make some students uncomfortable because it is contrary to their expectations and what they have been frankly taught to expect from their faculty, that immediacy, that immediate response that, you know, that the consumer model of the university has bled into everything that we do, but especially the email exchanges that we have with students and the, the idea that we are available immediately, immediately, whether it's over Teams chat or whether it's over our D2L shells or whether it's over email, whether it's over my office phone, whatever it is, there is an expectation of immediacy and immediate response, um, which I totally understand, right? It's both like a cultural norm and it has also become an expectation within the consumerist model of the university. 100%. And so I have set up these very clear boundaries as a, like as an employee, I have set up these boundaries, but also as like 
you know, a, a person who has many responsibilities, I have set up these boundaries. And it does make some students uncomfortable. And I would say far and away, the most negative, most common negative comment I get on my teaching evaluations is that she is slow to respond to email. Far and away. I mean, I'm just kind of shaking my head here because I think slowness is relative, right? Like, is it like, you know, I, I have received those comments as well. And I'm like, okay, but like you would give me a follow-up email after you sent me an email on Saturday on the Sunday night, right? Like, and so it seems to me as though, you know, let's kind of take that with a grain of salt. But also I was reading yesterday, um, you know, this imperative to kind of slow down and resist consumerist models for neoliberal universities. And one of the key points uh, that was said was, you know, the sense of urgency is like a consumerist mandate, right? Nothing is so urgent that it merits a response right away. And so I think, you know, teaching students and teaching each other that things can wait. You don't have to keep your inbox open all the time. In fact, I try to close my inbox, right? So I don't get distracted when I hear the email ping. I think that's been very useful when it comes to protecting my mental health. But I guess like you, it's still hard because sometimes I feel, well, maybe I should just respond to these emails and cater to these demands. Like I, I am also uh, a people pleaser as well. So I, I get it, but I, I, I like what you say about, you know, you just have to accept that some people will be annoyed and that's fine. Not everyone can like you, right? <laughs> yes, which is a much bigger issue that I think, you know, people struggle with, you know, especially like feminized folks working working in, in the university. There is an expectation on, on you know, faculty who read as female, um, of, of a, a kind of care labor that we will perform. And that does include, it seems to extend into e immediate responses to electronic correspondence. I, I feel like Laura's nodding a lot too. And I think, is that something, I mean, do you have boundaries? How do you enforce those boundaries? How do you make sure that you don't feel that you're an awful human being for not like being available 24 seven? Yeah, I mean, I'm like, oh, this so much of this is is a conversation for for the therapist, right? Boundaries. <laughs> um, I would say I'm a little bit different. I really am terrible, not terrible. Well, I often feel that I'm not very good with boundaries. So, like Tobin, I don't discuss substantive issues over email with students because it's just impossible. It's much better for us to have a conversation if you come to office hours or we make an appointment. Um, where I'm a little bit different is if it's um, if it's a quick thing, like a one-liner, I much prefer to respond on the spot if I'm on email and working. And that's because email gives me a lot of anxiety. Mm. Um, and so if I can just like, if someone's asking a really like straightforward question and I can just respond and I do it then, I don't worry about forgetting to respond. Mm. But I also want to recognize that that's not something anyone should demand of somebody. I don't think that that's a, for me, the reason that I do that is because for those sorts of emails and requests, that's what works for me. But I don't think anyone should demand that kind of response or labor of somebody else, especially when we're dealing with, you know, often hundreds of students, right? Um, and the other thing that I'll mention is just in the syllabus, I outline expectations, and I'm sure Tobin does this, I'm sure you do this, Ethel, I outline expectations around email, including expectations around response times. And I actually do find students are fairly respectful of that. 
I do have one question for both of you, though. Both of you have major service roles, right? Um, how do you manage that? Because you're teaching, but you're also, Laura, I don't know if you said this in your intro, but you also run like a research unit, right? Or a research center. And Tobin, you're, you're, you have a, a major department service role. You're undergraduate program coordinator. Like, how do you manage that on top of teaching? And then we'll talk about research and social reproduction in a second. How do you do it? <laughs> yeah, so I'm interim director right now. I'm acting director of a research center at Laurier and the usual director is on sabbatical and I got asked to step in for a year. Um, and I will say that colleagues associated with the center have been you know, very available and helpful in terms of providing guidance. But it's one of those roles that I think can be as much as you make it. And I really do, like, I'm kind of someone approaches me with an idea and I'm like, yes, that's awesome. Let's make it happen. And I've had to kind of curb myself a little bit in terms of thinking and partly because I think it's accountability to other people. If we initiate this, are we going to be able to follow through on it? How about you, Tobin? Yeah, so I'm an undergraduate advisor. So in my uh, program, we we share the responsibilities of sort of administering the program. And I'm undergraduate advisor, and I actually share that role with another pre-tenure colleague. Um, because the folks who are doing that work are pre-tenure, we split the work in half. Mm -hmm. And so we, we basically looked at, this, at the enrollment, and we just, like, cut the <laughs> alphabet. Yeah. And so students who are, if you're listening, students, A to L come to me for their last name, and then the rest of the alphabet goes to, to my colleague. And... We did this intentionally because we are small. I mean, I, I work at a small institution, so there is, there is, you know, service work to do. And then we, you know, there's a lot of community engagement research done in my, in my program. So, you know, there's just, there's a lot of work to do. So we split it up and what we've done to try to manage uh, the work of advising, because that actually is one of those service roles that can actually require an immediate response. Yes. I mean, if you, with ad drop dates and withdrawals and student loans and applications to graduate, and I mean, and the list goes on and on and on and prereqs, and it really can impact students' life if, if you're not kind of on top of, of it, is that we have a separate email account for oh, that. Okay. With, and we spent a lot of time, and, and I, I led this, setting this up. When students email us, they get an automatic response that lays out all of the information about advising that they need to know, where to get the forms they need to fill out, how to come see us, where the hours are, the links to my office hours for advising are in there, and it's all available to them. And so they get an immediate response that has a lot of the information that they need, and then they're information about like subsequent steps that they can take. I really like that. The fact that they get kind of an automatic response and if they have like questions, they can just kind of skim the email. Um, and if it's not answered, then they kind of follow up with you, right? One thing I do, and I don't know whether I'll get people following me with pitchforks <laughs> when I say this, <laughs> this is not necessarily about student emails, but my inbox is nuts. My inbox is bananas. I get so many requests, media, research requests, review requests, all the things, all the time, right? I actually use ChatGPT. So for some of the more common requests, right? 
oh, there's something about immigration, blah, blah, blah. This is a journalist. I want an interview. I like ask ChatGPT to type a very polite response and then I copy and paste it and send it out, right? Of course, I read ChatGPT's response first. It's not like it's a robot. I still read it. But I know that universities are so conflicted about ChatGPT, but things like that actually help manage it. So... I don't know. I mean, again, super controversial because folks, at least in my institution, are like, chat GPT's the devil. But I'm like, guys, I actually find it kind of helpful. <laughs> okay. I, I use chat GPT very occasionally. But for stuff like, can you make an event description? <laughs> um, and then I, I had this panel that I asked chat GPT to make an event description for. Because I just, I was having one of those moments where I just, I like, I couldn't put it together. So I was like, this is what we're doing. Can you write a description so I can you know, adjust it. And I asked chat GPT to make it more exciting because the first thing was kind of flat and it just, <laughs> it just became totally unusable. Like it was just so over the top uh, and a bit ridiculous, but no, seriously though, the initial event description, like it was helpful as something to build off of. Right. Yes. So I do use chat GPT for some of those kind of rope tasks that maybe, you know, you kind of have to do, there's kind of a formulaic way to do it. Um, and it might be helpful to have a, a sketch of like an initial um, set of thoughts to work off of. So, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe they're coming for the pitchforks with me as well, but you're not the only one that's done that. So I've, I've, I've two things. One, I thought, I thought you had like a plugin to embed this in your email and I got really excited no, because no. <laughs> my email is also a mess. If we're talking about failure, full disclosure, I probably have 3000 on <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like it's, a, and I know that's terrible, but a lot of them are institutional emails announcing the retirement of a colleague that I don't know, or, you know, a new you know, associate vice dean of whatever. Um, and so I don't read them. So it is a mess, but I got really excited about this because I thought it was a plugin that you embedded in your email. So one of the things, and maybe a developer's listening and that might make it more evil, but one it should thing, be free, socialized. I know, I know exactly, 100%. One thing I keep ranting about is if there's some sort of AI <laughs> that could sort my inbox oh. in terms of level of importance. Because I think what's tricky, and I've talked about this in a previous episode, is some folks have caught on that I am more likely to respond if you put important or time sensitive in the subject header. And then I open it. And I'm like, this is not urgent. Stop. Like, you know, this is not <laughs> urgent, right? Like, do not lie to me. And so if, but at the same time, okay, let's put a pin on this conversation, but like something that can make it easier for me to sift through things. So emails that announce the, reti the retirement of, you know, a beloved colleague from another department who, whatever, that can be put at the lower end of the priority list, right? Come on. <laughs> or like because happy, happy, happy holidays. holidays. Sorry, go ahead, Tobin. No, I say they're not retiring tomorrow. Like you have time to yeah. like read it, send a card, you know, yeah. do all the things. I would love this. <laughs> I was just going to say the happy holidays emails killed me. I got like two dozen from different university departments. You know, I got one from printing services, from IT, from, <laughs> from like department, like, you know, services I didn't even know existed. Um, and I just, like, I appreciate the sentiment, but it's, anyway I know. those people also get a million from us like so it's just the sort of like just, i know i know yeah. it's accelerationist um, it's such a huge source of stress i feel like i feel i feel it <laughs> can we talk about like administrative burden and administrative tasks because that's something i would love 
to get like we don't have a lot of administrative support for research administration at my institution and sometimes it's really frustrating um sometimes i am like preparing 25 check requisition forms oh my gosh that that need to be approved by somebody that i send them to that person and they're like it's not my job to go through these and i'm like well i don't think it's my job either you have to approve them. Can you approve them, please? Like, I know it's a lot. No, and I think this is kind of related to both your job as, you know, a research director, but also our research as well, right? And in previous group chats, we've talked about the administrative burden that managing these research projects have put on us. And I find that most of my time before I hired someone to specifically be a research coordinator was spent like putting in things on our expense software, right? Or on approving payroll, right? Which is such a pain. And so um, one thing I did, I allocated funds from my research grant towards hiring a research coordinator to just do this admin. Sometimes it's like a complicated case, especially for community-engaged research where you're spending so much time arguing with a university about the validity of some claims that they've submitted, right? And so I find that hiring someone dedicated towards providing that support has been revelatory. Like it actually has increased my availability for doing other things. So one of the things that has happened in universities, as we all know, is that more and more tasks of the institution have been downloaded onto faculty. As admin staff is further overloaded, Right? And and overstretched. So where where we see you know on and admin and I don't I don't mean like presidents and deans and no, such. No. I mean you know like our, the admin the admin who who support our work and and kind of make us function day, day in day out are are stretched and and we are too. And I remember and of course this this shows my I come from a very privileged background. My father was a university professor. And I remember him talking about someone typing up his exam for him. Oh my gosh. And I was like, wild. I'm like, I'm not that old, you know, like this was not 40 years ago. And I'm like, what could you imagine? And so the, the ways in which that work gets distributed and done has changed so much. Now, do I think that there should be someone who has a type of our exams? No, not necessarily, but certainly someone to support me in navigating through financial claims for community partners, that is an incredible amount of work. And the amount of time that I have spent complaining to both of you about <laughs> the hurdles uh, involved in that, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great deal of time. And, and I've, I've bounced around a bit. Like I've, this is my third tenure track job and it's the same everywhere. Laura, are there things that you do to make your research flow easier that, you know, makes it a little bit more survivable? I mean, I'm taking notes now. I'm like, oh, let's talk offline about these research coordinators. So I do not have a research coordinator. I have one potential kind of hack that I've had conversations with colleagues about is if we together, some of us who have larger external grants pitched money in, could we hire a research coordinator to assist with the work that yeah, like the, like all three of us or all four of us need, you know, which is probably I don't need the support of a full-time person, but I need some support. And I think they're in similar situations. And that's actually something that colleagues at the University of Guelph did um, and where I got the idea. So we've started to have some conversations about some, some mechanisms for this. 
I think, honestly, it's just such an ongoing struggle. And I think administrative staff are really feeling the burden of increased workloads. And I know for us, increased turnover has been a huge issue. So I would like to see those positions better compensated and other quality of work measures to keep people in those positions for longer, because especially with community-engaged research, sometimes it's constantly starting over again. So starting over, if you've got a new person to explain why you're not going to be able to provide the social insurance number. Or for me, when I work with people who are in precarious housing situations, why I have to use an e-transfer because they don't have a, a fixed and permanent address where you can mail a check, you know? And so often having these conversations over and over again, I mean, you know, a, a small thing is saving previous email correspondence that I can just copy and paste to the new person, like that sort of outlines the situation. So that does help somewhat. But also then sometimes there's shifting goalposts, like strange administrative decisions are made that then um, create more work for me. And so sometimes what was the case six months ago is no longer the case. And, and that can just be really exhausting. So I feel like I'm just complaining and not offering no, a lot no, no, no. of solutions I, here. No, I like this collective mindset, though, where pooling together and recognizing that this is a collective challenge. And so why can't you harness the solution collectively? I like that, right? That kind of fits in with our community-minded ethos, right? So collectives, communities, what are the communities that ground you? And we haven't talked about like care work and social reproduction yet. I mean, all of us have kids. And I will say that honestly, like if not for my communities, I won't be able to do the childcare that is oftentimes needed for when I have research trips or even if, you know, I just want to get a break from my kids. <laughs> like, how do you all manage, like, I don't know, domestic work? Do you have communities that support you in that? So I'm incredibly fortunate. So I moved from Toronto back to my hometown of Fredericton, New Brunswick, where my mother and her sister live. So my mother's sister is, is also my godmother. And Aww. so these, you know, these are, you know, my mother and I are very close, but also I'm very close with her, with her sister. So these are the women who've been a constant in my life who are still alive. My grandmother has passed away and they do an, an incredible amount of work for me. Like an um, like this, you want to talk about what makes my life function is those two women. Mm. That's what makes my life function. Okay. That is my hack is to, is to be surrounded by, Women who are incredibly caring, incredibly smart, incredibly competent, and who will step in when things start to fray. Mm. And yeah, that's that's it. They pick up my kids. Uh, if Greg and I are both working, they offer they drop all stuff off. My mom just went out and found Selby a new snowsuit because her snowsuit oh. was too small. And I had like 100 million meetings since the beginning of the semester. I mean, um, my mom has to go do something this afternoon. So unexpected. So like my aunt's going to go pick Selby up and take her piano lessons. They look after my kids so that Greg and I can go on dates so that we like still love each other. Like because we're both pre-tenure, right? So like our life is really busy. And so like truthfully, so that I can do the kind of research that I want so that I can have the kind of impact that I want. That's so sweet. That's so heartwarming. I also am privileged in that we like I have an extended care network in terms of my parents are nearby and they help out a lot. And something I've had to let go of the guilt. Like I always feel very mm. guilty. Like I ought to be able. And you know, I've got one kid and a spouse. People have multiple kids. People are lone parents raising kids. And 
you know, I always feel a little bit guilty, like I ought to be able to manage better. And I've had to just really let go of that. And so in addition to having, you know, my parents who help out a lot, this semester I'm teaching in evenings three days a week. Oh, don't even let that's another story. But um, so, you know, just really, they've been a huge help. The other piece is non-family care networks. So, you Mm -hmm. know, I've got a close friend who also lives nearby. Uh, She's single, you know, lives alone during COVID. She really came into our bubble and like started providing care to my daughter a few times a week when we were trying to patch together some sort of care that would enable, you know, my partner and I were trying to to still work uh, remotely. And so she's also just a huge, I'm just so thankful to have her in our lives as somebody who my daughter now has a close relationship with, who I can call and, you know, be like, Hey, I'm working late. Can you pick up Emmy from school? And so I think those care networks have been so valuable. I mean, the other piece, and I don't know about either of you is just letting some things go and letting go of some really gendered expectations. Oh my gosh. Um, Like I was raised in a really sort of heteronormative traditional division of labor household we never ate out. We never had fast food. My mom did a lot. She did a lot. If I wore a shirt to school on Monday and I said, mom, I want to wear it again on Tuesday, like she would wash it that night. Like, <laughs> hi, mom. Thank you. Uh, you were thank just you, so mom. wonderful. Uh, also, I can't do any of the things that you do. <laughs> like, like, we, you know, let go of some of those expectations around food. We're going to have pre-prepared food sometimes. We're going to eat out more. Um, let go of expectations around the level of organization and cleanliness in my home, you know, (laughs) where especially days like today, this is Friday. It's the end of the week. Our house is a disaster. It is, it is such a mess. There's like chewed gum, like on the table. And I don't know how it got there. I suspect it was the daughter could have been somebody else, you know, and it's just by the end of the week, it's a mess and we'll, we'll get it to a livable state on the weekend, but it's okay if it doesn't look like a magazine or whatever. It's funny. We're three feminists and yet I still sub I still feel like subconsciously we hold on to this ideal type of what mothers should be. And, and it's hard, right? Cause I feel like sometimes, I don't know, I, I didn't contribute anything to the school bake sale, right? Like, cause I oh, just, God. <laughs> I never do. Don't worry about it. I just didn't like, I'm sorry. I don't have time to bake a cupcake. Right. Like, and then I feel guilty and I'm like, so that is an area where I feel a lot of guilt (laughs) around like being like involved and listeners, you can't see me, but I'm putting like quotations around the word involved, being involved in, uh, supporting the extra activities that like my kid's school or daycare does. I just, I don't have time. I don't. And I do. I feel an incredible amount of guilt about that. I also think, though, that I have benefited enormously from growing. Now, my mother did everything. It's not that the division of labor in my family was not gendered. It was super gendered. And my dad would go away for work for like months and months and months at a time. I mean, it was super gendered. But my mother had like a, like an, a, this like magical ability to like, balance and do it all. And I just don't have it. Like, I don't have it. I just, I don't, I am not that skilled and I am not that capable. And like, that's okay. And I'm never going to be like, I will never be that person. And that's okay. I want to scroll on TikTok and like, and like drink a diet Coke or like a glass of wine or like a tea at the end of the day. Like I just, I do. And it's, you know, at like nine o'clock at night before I go to bed. 
I love that these these vices. You're like, I, I, you know, it's, it's my glass of wine and TikTok scrolling. Like that's or like like a diet coke, which Laura knows, like is one of my my favorite vices. Like I I do just want to do that without feeling like I have to like bake cupcakes or like do that kind of stuff. And so it, it is an act of putting me first. And in a lot of ways, it's it would be seen by many as a selfish act. No, why, why um, is it selfish? No, no, no. It would be seen by many as I don't think it's selfish. It would be seen by many as a selfish act. So that if I do have if I do have hours in the day that it should be spent on the bake sale or I don't know, like contributing, I don't know, whatever, like leftover toys we have to like the school the drive, <laughs> the school drive, or like whatever. But I don't have time. And any time that I do have is limited time for me. I mean, like, I want to go for a run. I want to, you know, doom scroll like everybody else. I want to, you know, sit on the couch and do nothing. I want to spend time with my partner. And so I'm trying really hard not to feel guilty about that. That is my hack. Ignoring the guilt, dissociating from the guilt while doing things that I enjoy. Yeah. And I think we need to carve out those times, right? Like I feel like all I did during the holiday was like, you know, day blood into night, but I was so happy because I was, and I'm now an old lady. I was doing these like 1000 word puzzles, listening to murder mysteries. And then my kids will be like, can I help? And I'm like, no, no, you cannot. No, you cannot. Like, no, I mean, they did help. Right. But I'm just like, you know, like they, they, they helped, but then they got bored, but it's just, you, you need to carve out these spaces for you, just for you and letting go of the guilt. Although I do feel that it's easier said than done because I feel like there are other moms and it's not dad's moms who are like more together than me. I see them at the schoolyard. They're wearing like power suits and they see, I don't know. I don't know what help they have. Right. But we always compare. And so, yeah, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Listeners, I am wearing sweatpants and uh, sweatshirts and I have dirty hair and that will be my entire day because I will sit in front of this computer and do that until my kids come home. And then I will parent and then I will doom scroll TikTok. And yeah, I, I, I absolutely feel you, Ethel. I just, it's so hard to find that, that space and time, um, to do that kind of engagement. And then you feel guilty about how much time your kids spend on screens. And that's something else I've tried to let go of. Yeah. It's part of that letting go, right. A little bit like, you know, and and just thinking about what's good enough. Like you're watching too much TV today. You'll probably be fine in the wash. Like when you grow (laughs) up, you're not going to remember the Tuesday in January where like, everything was chaos and your parents just sat you down in front of the TV for three hours. Maybe you will. Maybe that'll, maybe you'll be like talking to your therapist, like Tuesday, but probably not. Listen, we were all children of the eighties. The things that our parents (laughs) did. Sure. Our moms were like, you know, they did more things than us. Right. But they also did a lot of fucked up things that parents today would never do. Like, you know, unsupervised, unstructured TV watching. Right. And my dad used to be a smoker and he would just like puff cigarettes in front of me. You know what I mean? Like, and, uh, you know, Wayne had uh, one of the producers for this podcast would talk about how him and his brother would just p- play like unsupervised wrestling matches in their basement and their parents are like, whatever working. Like, I think, I don't know. I think we should hold ourselves maybe not to the 1980s standard, but let go of the expectation for maternal perfectionism. Yeah. Reclaim your time. Strategies for subvert. No, honestly, I think valuing your time as your time is so important. And I think, you know, for me, when I'm not doing that, I'm not doing well. Right. And Mm. that means like declining to work on weekends regularly. Mm. 
declining to work evenings regularly. And I want to say, I realize it's not always possible, but, you know, thinking about what pieces of your time do you need to protect for you? Or sometimes for me, that's even just like time to do something fun with my kid, uh, Mm. which is like how I unwind these days, you know, as we'll go swimming or we'll go, you know, for a hike or something. And yeah, you're not supposed to always be working. That's not how people work best. And, uh, I reject it. (laughs) I do think that there is this, and this is going to sound quite trite, but I think within the academy, we've let go of the idea. I think that we can have it all quote unquote. Like we know that if we're rocking it as a researcher one week, maybe our teaching is not 10 out of 10, or if like we're, you know, performing at like the highest possible level at work one week, maybe like home life, you know, there's the gum on the table. There's like, you know, the stack of laundry on the floor. And so I think we've let go of the idea that we can, have it all, all the time, the sort of that seamless perfection. But I don't think that we've let go of the expectation that we still do it all. Mm. Like we still try to do it all. We've just accepted that it like kind of looks like a clusterfuck. Mm. And Mm. so, so it doesn't have to look pretty. It doesn't have to look nice. It can be kind of messy, but there's still an expectation that we engage in all of it. And I have not, I have no idea how, I don't have a hack for that one, how to let that go. I don't have it. I think a friend of mine told me that it's our tendency to be perfectionist that we need to let go off. And so even for research and teaching and parenting, one thing she said is what's, what's good is when it's done. Right. So even for like journal articles, I'm like, it, it might not be like perfect grammatically, but I've submitted it and it's done. Uh, With my kids, I'm like, are they fed? Are they happy? Are they like, you know, are they whatever? Are they feeling that they have a community around them? Absolutely they do. And I think letting go of the notion too that, you know, it has to be me all the time. They have my mom, they have my dad, they have Wayne. Do you know what I mean? Letting go of the expectation that only us, that we are the only ones who have to carry this. No, you know, And so I think for me, what's good is done. And also everything that you say as well, Tobin and Laura, like just kind of (laughs) carving out time for ourselves, but also recognizing that sometimes we have to think about sustainability and, you know, we don't have to do it all um, at that level of perfection. We don't have to give it all at that 100%. I don't know. That's kind of dissatisfactory, though. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I think it's going to be. Yeah, we're, I know. We're talking about like highly extract, like highly extracted industries, and and the incredibly difficult work of keeping the social reproduction train on the wheels. I mean, it's it's incredible. It's incredibly difficult. It's, it, I mean, yeah, it will require massive social change. Thank you both so much. Um, this was really helpful, and. Uh, Hopefully, both of you take the time to yourselves during the weekend or spend time with your kids and have fun. Why should we feel guilty about that, right? Like, we don't have to think about work all the time. (laughs) So, thank you. Thanks, Ethel. Thanks so much for having us, Ethel. Listeners, I hope that you heed Tobin and Laura's advice. Let's normalize not trying to get our minds colonized by capitalist mindsets that equate our self-worth with endless work. Let's normalize being smart about where we give 100% and where we give, well, less than that. 
and let's get rid of individualist mindsets that have warped us into believing that we have to do all of this alone. As academic aunties producer Nisha Nath always tells me, we should let our communities hold us and care for us. And that's Academic Aunties. Academic Aunties is produced by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, Wayne Chu, and Dr. Nisha Nath. Follow us on all social media. We're at Academic Auntie on Twitter and Academic Aunties everywhere else. Rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And email us anytime at podcast at academicaunties.com. Tune in next time when we talk to more Academic Aunties. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.